Welcome everybody, this is another episode of Philosophy Universe, a podcast about science fiction, philosophy and fantasy, and everything in between. And today we have a special treat. We spoke in our last episode about the Ring of Gyges, which is, you know, a 2300-year-old story told by Plato, and that was a good introduction to the main questions of ethics. And here we have with us uh, Randy Richards, who is the author of a contemporary retelling of the Ring of Gyges. He wrote a book in 2015, it's called The Unseen Hand of Peter Gyges. It was published by Iron Wolf Press. And well, we have here Randy to learn a little bit more about the insights that brought him to this book. So, hello, Randy. Hey, Alfredo, thank you for calling me and asking me to do this. Uh, I was really pleased and surprised by that. So thank you. I'm looking forward to this. All right. So before we talk about the book itself, can you tell us a little bit about the journey that took you to teach business ethics? Because Randy has been here, teacher at St. Ambrose for a few years. 44 when I was active. Right. I was 19 years as an adjunct. Mm -hmm. and then another 25 years as a full-time professor. The, it's an interesting journey, not to go into too much detail, but was on, when I was an adjunct, I was teaching purely philosophy and not business ethics. Because at the time, the, the business department, the people in the business department did not like me and, and <laughs> thought I would be detrimental to their students if they got business ethics from me. So I was blackballed. Uh, oh, from wow. Yeah, that's a true story. <laughs> Later, when I became a full-time professor... I was going to teach business because all that time I'd been in management. So they wanted me, for my mm -hmm. practical experience, to teach in management. But they said I could teach one class a semester in business and, and, or in ethics. And I thought, well, business ethics. So I went to talk to the chairman of the business department at the time. And I sat down with him and I said, hey, what's the problem? You know, what, why, why, why has this been the case, right? right? And he said, I don't really know. And so we had this nice talk, and after that, it was fine. So after that, I taught business ethics. It was a mysterious black I, I have no idea what, <laughs> what the source of that was, but evidently I had offended someone, and they didn't like me, and so they didn't want me to teach business ethics. But when I sat down and talked with them, it, mm -hmm. all, it was all fine. It was right. all fine. So I taught business ethics at Ambrose for about, I think, maybe 20 years or 25 years, something like that, at, when I, as a full-time professor. And um, the book is from 2015, but I remember talking to you and you were planning a sequel. I also have a sequel uh, as well. So that, that comes... The Unseen Web of Oscar Perkoff. Right. So the first one is The Unseen Hand of Peter Gyges, mm -hmm. and the second one is The Unseen Web of Oscar Perkoff. So the ring continues. Yes, I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I brought you a copy, so you can have a copy. Yes. And do you have any other interesting projects in, at hand right Well, now? I just finished my fourth novel, which is a novel about a murder in Davenport of a, a doctor from Palmer who is changing her mind about being an anti-vax advocate, and she's going to come out publicly and say she now believes that vaccinations, due to the COVID experience, And then she'd done some work in Africa with Ebola. And so she's going to come out publicly. And she dies mysteriously of falling down the stairs. Oh, no. and, oh indeed. <laughs> and then the story is, why was she die? How did she die? And what did, was really an accident or was she killed? Mm -hmm. And if she was killed, what's the connection between her anti-vaccination conversion to right. vaccination uh, advocate? Is that connected to her death? And is it more of a 
detective story or more of a political mystery? That's a really good question. Uh, we know early that the death was not accidental. We know she was killed, but we don't know why. So the book uh, story tries to uncover, peel back, what possibly could be the reasons for this. And so the, the main character after that is her, her lover, who is uh, targeted by the police, of course, as the killer. And so he's framed by the same people that killed her so that they'll hang the murder on him and they will escape notice. So that's finished. I haven't been the title of it? The, um, the Unenviable Journey. The Unenviable Journey. The Unenviable Journey. Uh, okay. Of, of, yeah, of um, Primo Almeida. So I, the, uh, the, un, the unseen, the unseen and the unenviable. The unenviable. So I've, in, when, in that genre, I'm using that as a kind of way to signal that there's something going on there. So that's in the, that's in process, and that's done. I need to get my cover done by my uh, youngest son James. He does the covers for my books, and then I'm starting my fifth one, which is a fantasy based on a Lithuanian myth of ancient origin, uh, which I've altered significantly. But it's the inspiration for it. So I'm about sixty pages into that. So I'm I'm working steady on that too. Oh, congratulations! So. Uh, to our readers, I'm not going to spoil the unseen hand of Peter Geiges, but just to give you an introduction so you can understand what we are talking about. It's again a modern retelling of a Plato story of the Ring of Geiges, and the main character Peter Geiges is basically a middle management guy. He's not really very ambitious. He works in acquisitions in a company. Um, he's kind of mild-mannered, but in one of his fishing trips, he discovers this magical ring that makes him invisible. And so the book kind of chronicles the journey of this man, who, like I said, he's not very ambitious, but he becomes progressively more and more cunning as he discovers what he can do with the ring. And at first, it's mostly the ability to spy on other people, a little bit of industrial espionage here and there, and knowing what his co-workers are planning, but he uses this power to basically climb in the hierarchy of his company and gain more wealth and more power while he progressively distanced himself from, from the people around him. And um, to be honest, I don't feel too bad for some of the people that he backstabs in, in the <laughs> novel. I feel that, you know, if they had the ring, they would be doing exactly the same well, thing. Well, that's the issue, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the issue in Plato. Yeah. But I do feel bad for some of the people that are more trusty there. Yeah. That, that continue to think his their friend during the course of the yeah, yeah, yeah. and they don't realize that they're being taken advantage. There's right? a large element of betrayal here. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how did you, or what uh, inspired you to write this particular kind of story? Uh, um, that's a good question. I used, as you are using, um, the, the story from Plato mm -hmm. as an, in my business ethics classes and in other ethics classes, okay? Right. So I was using it for a long time. And I had done a number of variations with it and done lots of different ways to get people to, interested in participating in it. And then I decided that I would write a play based on that myth. And I had a lot of information from how people reacted to it because I taught it in class, so there was a lot of conversations about it. So I had a lot of things in my head to draw from. So I wrote it as a play. And when I finished it as a play, um, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't enough character evolution, which is really what this is was about. Was it said like in Plato's time? No, it's, it, 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 it's, it's essentially similar to 
the setting in Minneapolis that the the novel takes place in. And so again, I was talking with my youngest son and younger son James, and he said the play format is not the format to evolve a character once you turn it into a novel. So I said, okay. So I went and rewrote the whole thing back into a novel after I'd written it as a play. Mm-hmm. And it, that is correct. What happened was what James said would happen is I had much gr- larger opportunity to develop Gaijis as a character. Right. And that's really what I wanted to show, right? Mm-hmm. What happens to a person who believes that they can act without consequence, which is what Plato's asking, right? What happens to someone who could act with impunity? What kinds of things would happen to them? Now, his story is very short, right? The shepherd becomes the king, right? So it's a short journey, okay? Yeah. So my journey is longer and, yeah. and more, hopefully more interesting uh, yeah, in that way. The story is, 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 it goes from having the ring, basically, to what is he going to do? He's probably going to just end up killing the king and... That's and about it. seducing yeah. his wife, right? What, yes. well, what, what else would one do with it, right? Right. If you were a shepherd. Yeah. So here we see much more of the nuance of on, on the temptation and. The yeah, 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 and the progression. Yeah. Or, or digression, right? The not ascension, but descension, at least in terms of character. Right. So, when you use this story with your students, what, what were the responses that you get? Do you get the feeling that they will be using the ring for evil or for good? <laughs> well. Uh, the, one of the interesting things is, and, and it reflects in the book, I think, is the when I would ask people, okay, you have the ring. What do you what will you do with it? That would be an exercise, okay? You you could act with impunity. You have this ring. You can do whatever you want. What will you do with it, okay? And mostly, the students' imagination about this was rather limited. So it was it was uh, trivial stuff like I would you know I would steal, okay? I would I would shoplift. I. I'd get on a plane and didn't have to pay for a ticket. I'd get into the theater, movie theater, not have to pay for it. Of course you do. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, (laughs) so Gaijis goes through a a stage of that, right? Mm -hmm. He goes through a stage of that kind of thing, right? But then I would ask my students, "What? You have this power to do whatever you want, and you're sneaking into a theater? What is the matter with you? You know?" Oh well. Think bigger. Think bigger, right? <laughs> think grander. Think, think. <laughs> Come on, where's the criminal genius here? Okay. Uh, and so, um, and then that became okay. Well, what would actually happen, right? How would we evolve if we really could act without Im- without fear of consequence, without being discovered? Okay. And we began to recognize what was possible. We would, th- I think go on a kind of journey that Gaijis went on. So he's an everyman character, yes? And the Plato's story is, well, do you desire the good because of the good, or do you do good because you're afraid you'll be caught, or you're afraid of the consequences, okay? And so here, we have removed any concern of the consequences from this person, the everyman, and what happens to him, right? He becomes a monster, so the fact that this is set up in a business setting, yeah, is it? Uh, I guess part of it is because you're familiar with this. But would you say that the business setting particularly encourages people <laughs> to <laughs> this kind of decision? You know, I'm I'm still working in business. I got to be careful about that answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think there's plenty of um, evidence that uh, that's a an addition to maybe politics. Okay. 
that's um that's an arena where we do see people who are predatory and who try to hide their predatory behavior and keep it from sight, right? Or even have a sort of double personality, you know, and this person in business, and, this person at home. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And so, and you look at some of the great scandals that have become public, right? Not to mention all of the small stuff that goes on, which I spent 20 years in management, so I've got plenty of small stuff that goes on that I know in terms of this kind of thing. And really, people are trying to hide what they do. They know that there's something the matter with it, Mm -hmm. okay? And they try to hide it. And there's lots of ways to try and hide it in business, okay? You can hide within the complexity of the law, okay? So if you look at the Enron case, okay, they were hiding within the complexities of the regulatory environment. And they kept, yes, they kept their predatory behavior hidden through massive confusions about what regulatories allow and what it didn't allow. And they had a big department there to help them do that. So they were hiding sort of in plain sight, right? And And they had the power to... Yeah, Yeah, they had the money, they had the power, they had the status, they had the reputation, right, to do that. I just use them as an example, right? But there are lots of examples. I mean, you know, just pick up the, you know, newspaper, okay? And so you can see people doing what they know is wrong and then trying to hide that. And I have some very personal examples where I was asked to do things that people knew were wrong. They were asking me to do wrong things and then trying to cover it up or to hide it, that -hmm. that would be part of what I was being asked to do. I mean, on a personal level. Of course, I always refuse to do it. But um, the fact that people are asking and then knowing that it should be hidden is yes. indicative of the kind of thing that we're trying to get at with the Gaiji's book. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to say something else, and you can do what you want with it on the edit, okay? Yeah. But the book is, while it, that's a theme, right, the book is a thriller, okay? So it's not like we're bogged down in this discussion, right? This is a background piece, and we're following this as it goes through. So I don't want to give the impression that this is some kind of academic tome. This is a straight-out thriller, Right. And wh- what he's doing and does he get away with it? Doesn't he get away with it? How, whom does he betray? How does he betray them? To what lengths will this character go? Right. So in that sense, right, the philosophy is there, but it's, it's underneath yeah. the, the, the thriller. And I, if you look at the people's comments who have read the book, right, it's all about being a thriller. And sometimes people don't even, I've talked to people who've read it and the idea of what's happening to him, right, in his descent as a character is really um, not something that they often pick up on. They're more interested in the the actual story and the kind of actions he takes and what happens, right? Right. I am reading it with the eye of a philosopher who knows the background story, so I cannot look at it. Right, right. But basically, it's almost like a reverse superhero story in a sense. Yes, it is. That's a nice point. That's a nice point. (laughs) That's a nice point. And the ring only plays a small role in what happens, right? It allows him to do certain things, right? But the, the ring is a stand-in for any kind of way that we would hide what we do. Yeah. It, it's just a way to get at this question yeah. of if you thought you could act without fear of consequence, what would you do, right? So we use the ring, and Plato did too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, in that story, yeah. uh, Gyges is a real character in history. He was He did take over the empire of Lydia, he did do it through murder, and so, and he rose to some power, all right? There's no, I mean, the ring story comes about in some other way, but he's doing the same thing. Yeah, he's just reading, you know, his Phytias, which is on, on Atlantis, he just prints 
the whole continent in such a way that people have been looking for Atlantis for centuries <laughs> afterwards. You know? So it does the same thing here. To, right. You know, right. To make a point about yeah. our connection to the good. And I think that's that's precisely one, one of the reasons why, why science fiction and fantasy are so good for philosophical reflection, because we get into that without thinking necessarily about philosophy. The reflection maybe comes later. Right, right. And so, again, without telling too much, Gaikas seems to get away with quite a lot and uh, does not particularly feel rotten when uh, his plotting and scheming is successful. He's not, so to speak, punished, you know, by his ethical decisions or unethical decisions in this case. He has, he, has, he has few qualms, don't you think? He's not really a person given to... His, you know, his self-reflection is, how can I advance my agenda? How can yeah. I move myself forward? He, it's he not about, is this wrong? Yeah. He never asked that question. It never occurs to him, does it? I can't remember. I wrote it, but I can't remember any instance where he thought, well, there, I take it back. There is one instance. It's not that he thinks it's wrong, mm-hmm. okay? When he faces this guy that's kind of puzzled out that he's maneuvering at work and he wants to replace his boss, and he's going to try to replace his boss, he pauses in front of stabbing him and he pauses in front of that and he can't bring himself to do it yes he can do something else but he can't bring himself to do that and i'm not sure maybe there's that one little inkling of conscience at that point but he just cannot bring himself to do it in that way yeah. it, maybe it's because it's too personal right right but later that that being personal stuff does not get in the way but at that moment of his development it did Give him pause. A- after that, no so, more, no more pausing. So, are you here? This is a, a bad way of phrasing the question. But are you here siding with Trasimachus in that you know he can get away with murder, or are there any subtle, sub- more subtle ways in which a guy gets the unjust man suffers from his injustice? Um, I don't know. I don't know. You just tell the story. Well, I'm. <laughs> I I like what you're asking. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good question. But it's not just Thrasymachus. I think, in the end, Plato decides that most people don't do the good because they value the good. Don't you think? Uh, uh, he, he, he's not an optimist about this. He's been around a while. He's seen crap happen. Yes. He knows most people don't value the good. He knows most people are afraid of the consequences of their behavior. They're afraid to be punished. They're afraid to be caught. Right? Yeah. It's this. I mean, Nietzsche covers the same territory, doesn't yeah. he? With the death of God, right? I'm very honest about Thrasymachus getting so angry at his people being willing to choose and trying to tell it. Because he thinks it's hypocritical. He thinks they're hypocrites, right? Yeah. However, one thing that I noted in the in the novel is he progressively becomes more distant from fellow human beings, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and that that could be maybe the the subtle punishment that he doesn't realize he's having because. This this Irish family, basically the owners of the company, you know, they, they constantly, you know, try to bring him back in, you know, hey, I guess, you know, let's right. go have a beer, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. They were his they were his boyhood friends. Mm-hmm. They had befriended him in childhood. Yeah. He he was practically one of them. Right. Right. In but fact, he has his job because they hired him, even though he's no great shakes, right? And they kind of keep him on because he was almost part of the family, and yet. It feels like, you know, he cannot continue to be their friends in earnest while he's plotting. And doing no, he cannot. He cannot. So he's self, self-isolating. Yes. From the rest of yeah, yeah. Absolutely. His distance from his wife, 
distance from his friends, the O'Briens, distance from everybody. In the end, it's just about him. Right. I still, I still laughing about that uh, scene in which the O'Briens have a funeral and end up stealing the casket, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> going around the street. But Gaius takes no part on that. No, no. Actually, he watches it from a distance. Yes. Right. He mm-hmm. watches from a distance about what's going on. And that's the distancing that you mm-hmm. talked about, right? That's the metaphor for he's distancing himself from his friends and he cannot even be there be, because right. of who he is, who he's become, yeah. who he has become. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's how stories, you know, bring us to this thing. They, it's not, you know, like the, the children's stories in which the little kid did something bad and then a, a building fell on his head, you know, yeah. or something like that. It's much more subtle. Than it is, it is. Our decisions affect what we're going to be doing, yeah. One of the claims in the Republic, when Socrates' friends come up with the story of Gyges, is that not only the successful and just person lives a better life than the just man, but that it would be very difficult to resist doing all the evil things that Gyges did in the end with that power. Uh, it's basically other people seeing us that keep us in check. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe being seen by God, right? So some people go, well, you know, He'd be punished in hell, right? I said, um, he's not being seen even by God, right? He's invisible. His actions are invisible to others, including God. So if God doesn't see it, and God's not going to punish him in the afterlife, and a number of students think, well, okay, in this life, he's going to get away with it. He's going to hell in the next one, right? It's like, no, he's not. He's not going to hell, okay, because God doesn't see it. I mean, if you're postulating that God sees it, I can postulate that he doesn't, okay? That's fine. And this is, as I say, where Nietzsche ends up with, the death of God, right? If God does not exist and God is not going to punish people, then what in the world will happen to us? Because people are just going to do whatever they want and we're all going to live in hell on earth. And he's asking the same question, I think, that we find in in Plato, which is what happens if people can act without fear of consequence? If there is no God, if you're not going to be punished in hell, right? Then yeah. what what will you let loose on earth if that's the case. Now, Nietzsche didn't believe in God, but he thought people, other people believing God was a good idea, right? That it was useful, right? <laughs> yeah. Because it kept them in check, right? Yeah. And so it's good that most people believe in hell because if they didn't, it'd be terrible. It's a little bit like the noble lie in Plato's Indeed, Let's indeed. Tell this story to yes. people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they basically continue this organization. Indeed. To be yep. Positive. Yep. It's a very, very puzzling thing in the Republic that Plato's proposing to lie to a whole generation of people. Yeah, to a whole society, right? Mm -hmm. For utilitarian purposes, because it's better for everybody if we tell this story, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, And uh, this is something that we're going to be discovering as we look at some of the ethical theories in our future episodes, but it's one of the main quests of philosophy to try to see if we can somehow ground an ethical life without the idea of God punishing us, you know, in an afterlife and so forth. So this became a very important thing, particularly in modern times, when skepticism and agnosticism yeah, grew yeah. And, 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 you know, the contact with other ways of thinking. But already Plato is placing this question right at the center of his, of his project. Right. Yeah. Early, early in our, in our reflections as because people about this, yes? We had to have a philosophical answer to this question. Otherwise, you know, we may be acting hypocritically or... Yeah. Well, I think... Aristotle tries to provide an answer to this with the well-lived life, with the life uh, dominated by eudaimonia, right? I think... Eudaimonia is uh, basically Aristotle's word for what we now call happiness. The well-lived life, 
yeah. right? Mm-hmm. A, a life of, of thriving, okay? Yeah. And, but that life of thriving, for Aristotle's understanding of it, right, includes acting under emotional control. And if you look at what Plato's suggesting in his story and what I'm suggesting in my story, this person is almost without emotional control, right? In a certain sense, whatever their desires and emotions dictate, they do, okay? They're only regulated by will it work or won't it work. Aristotle's asking a different kind of question. What does a good life look like? What does a well-lived life look like? Not because you're going to heaven afterwards because he doesn't believe in that kind of thing, okay? But here and now, what would a good life look like, right? And he's got several characteristics of what that is. And so in his description of that, then the next question, though, is the same kind of question, I think, with Plato, although I think Aristotle's slightly more optimistic, and that is, uh, how many people can actually do this, right? Because if I'm going to live a well-lived life, it requires some discipline on my part in order for me to do this, right? First, the, the main thing is the discipline of my managing my emotions so I don't get carried away emotionally and then ruin my life by not having my emotions under control. So I think Aristotle tries to provide an answer that says, yes, we can live this well-lived life in view of our friends. In fact, that may be part of what it means to live a well-lived life. That It's in view of our friends, right? Whereas Plato, it's like, it's out of the view of our friend. So maybe our friends can help us. Not because we're afraid, but because, as Aristotle, I think, suggests, our friends are a mirror of us. And you can tell what kind of person you are by looking at your friends and looking at the people you associate with, right? Yes, and the kind of friendship you have that. Yes. And to some extent, uh, even his view of society, political society, is almost like a big kind of friendship. It is, it is. So, I, in, in one sense, I think they would agree that it would be unusual. It, it's not that Plato says no one could do this. His, I think, view is very few people would value the good as the good. And Aristotle takes that and says a few people, the f- people trained with philosophy, right, in self-reflection, in thinking about stuff, in examining things, back to Socrates, right? Could we live a really good life and relish that life because it gave us something in the here and now beyond the mere acquisition of power and wealth, right? It'd be friendship. It would be a sense of contribution to society. It would be being a a good citizen. Those would be valuable in and of themselves, regardless of money and power. I think he he opens that door for us. Um, So he's a little more optimistic than Plato, but not a lot. Because their experience was, you know, those were pretty brutal times. Aristotle is normally very optimistic, although he's... Speaking to a particular class of people, mm-hmm. in that sense, people mm-hmm. already have the means for life, etc. But Indeed. he seems to assume that people are going to be rational to some extent. But the, the book, as well as Plato's story, sets up the stakes very highly. There's no very obvious comeuppance. Comeuppance? Comeuppance, yes, that's a great word. I like that word. That's a good word for this. <laughs> comeuppance on, on, on Peter Geiges. You know, there's not an, an obvious punishment. He doesn't... Well, he does. In the end, does he prosper? I'm not spoiling it, but I'm just asking you. He does not prosper ultimately in the end, does he? And his actions have led to his demise, doesn't it? Don't they? Oh, there's a demise at the end? There must be. Yeah, you can cut that part out if you like. But he's, you know, 
But the point is, there's not an obvious during the progress of his life. No. It's not an obvious, you know, oh, I'm a terrible person. I'm suffering from what I'm doing. I no. Should, I should turn to the just life. Right. And so the task, which is also put in the Republic at the very beginning, you know, by first by Thrasymachus, and then by Plato's friends who think that Thrasymachus' challenge is not enough, is can you show us that a life of virtue, a life of the, of the just person, is going to give us more gain going to be more profitable in some of the translations than the life of the unjust person. Right. And so the book also, you know, I think sets up this very well for what is going to be our next episodes and our continued exploration on these questions about ethics. I think the question is what counts as gain? If what you think counts as gain is money and power, then that's it, right? Then the pursuit, the unbridled pursuit of money and power, because those are the gainful things, okay? Honesty may not be the best policy. It is, no, if the, well, the honesty is the best policy if it gets you what you want. If it doesn't get you want, then it's not the best policy, right? It's a utilitarian issue if honesty is the best policy or not. Sometimes it is. Right. Sometimes it's not. If it isn't, then what do you do, right? Well, depends upon what you think gain is. What, what are the values? What are the rewards? What are the things that would bring me to a life that I really wanted to live? And I think, uh, at least in my telling of the story... It doesn't get him, in the end, what he wants. Even along the way, and I, I really appreciate the, your perception of this, he becomes more and more distanced from people, more and more estranged, and more and more isolated. And he doesn't reflect on that, but it's obvious, I think, if you think about what's happening to him, he's become more and more um, alone. Yeah. And who among us, really, who among us wishes to live a life alone, Right. It's not a life, in Aristotle's terms, worth living if you had to live it alone. And so I think I'm bringing a kind of Aristotelian perspective in the back door that this is not a well-lived life, even though on the outside it might look successful. He has money, he has power, he has position, he has status. But in the end, what's happened to him? He's alone. Is that what we want? And I think so in that sense, I think it's a cautionary tale. Thank you very much, Randy. Oh, thank you. Here and join us in our next episode of Philosophy, Philosophy Universe. Universe. And uh, remember, if you have any thoughts about this, join the conversation and leave some comments. And thank you for listening. Great. Thanks for having me.